Today on Media Download. From Montclair State University and WMSC-FM, the latest on technology and media issues and top business headline news. Curated by your host, Meryl Brown. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Media Download. I'm Merrill Brown, Director of the School of Communication and Media at Montclair State University, and we're hoping with this regular podcast we'll be giving you some of the uh, current and best insight around about media and technology issues. Joining me today on this debut episode to discuss how media is covering the presidential campaign and the latest on the troubled newspaper industry is NPR's Crackerjack media correspondent and author of Murdoch's World, David Falkenflick. Welcome, David. Hey, thanks so much, Merrill. Great to be part of your first show. It's great to have you. We have lots to talk about. Your life as media correspondent is very busy right now because media stories seem to be everywhere, and thus you are everywhere. Am I right about that? Uh, it feels like it. I mean, uh, uh, you know, the media is obsessed with itself, uh, no doubt. And so perhaps we overcovered it in some ways, but actually it's undergoing tremendous changes and it's undergoing tremendous growth uh, and expansion, proliferation. So uh, it's really all amounts to a full full employment act for people like Dave Folkenflick. Excellent. I'm glad you're fully employed. Um, so David, let's start with the presidential campaign, which it seems to me, uh, above all, is a media story. It is the story of media-created candidates. It's the story of a campaign that in a summer, uh, 15 months before a presidential election, seems to have more media and public attention than one could have possibly expected. What's your point of view on how the media has really created both candidates and a level of interest in presidential politics? Let's take four seconds to pause and have some pity for Hillary Clinton. I mean, here she is uh, undergoing a, a different version of what she experienced in 2008. She thought that she was going to make history as the first female president back then and certainly as the first uh, major party female nominee. And it didn't happen. Barack Obama just, you know, ultimately ran the table uh, in a way that helped him uh, uh, secure that pretty neatly. In this case, she thought again, she said, look, you know, she's had extra uh, tickets punched. She thought she was going to be uh, leading the charge again as the first female nominee. And it looks like certainly she will be the nominee of the Democrats, although that's in somewhat in doubt. And yet the Republican side has completely dominated the airwaves, dominated the headlines. And you're absolutely right. It's not like, uh, you know, my my earliest remembrance of uh, presidential races in any way might have been in the 80s. And 1988 was an open year. There was no incumbent for either party. Uh, so you had a bunch of Republicans, a bunch of Democrats, but they all, you know, served in various worthy positions. In this one, you have uh, currently the three three of the top candidates on the Republican side are completely non-political figures. Uh, you have Donald Trump, you have Ben Carson, you have Carly Fiorina, who had run for office once before. But these are figures who are not conventional politicians. And their presentation to the public is very much about who the media has... Uh, how the media has presented them, how the media has captured them, and the extent to which the media has paid attention. I think in, in large regard, and we should certainly talk about Trump, but large regard, Ben Carson, for example, has taken seriously a notable, brilliant a neurosurgeon, brain surgeon uh, at the, the Johns Hopkins Hospital and Johns Hopkins Medical Institutions, uh, whom I remember from my days uh, when I was a, a young reporter in Baltimore in the 1990s. But no one ever expected him to be a national political figure. The reason he is, is he's given speeches and started to be covered by the conservative press particularly Fox News, and therefore was exposed to the kind of core voters who make up such an important part of the early states. Now, we're months away from the first real votes. But, you know, Ben Carson, I think, is is 
his plausibility as a leading candidate has been created by the media and suddenly he's allowed to perform in these debates and he's emerged with some support. Donald Trump, for months, he blacked out the sky. He was the only person the media would pay attention to, so lively, so confrontational, uh, so willing to say whatever popped into his head and came out of his mouth that people kind of thrilled to that. And sometimes it was the sense that he was not only tweaking the guy in the White House who's a Democrat, but tweaking the conventional politicians who are Republicans. And I think the media has very much shaped what we've seen as, as on the side of the Republicans in this race. And you've presented that in a very straightforward fashion, but let's get to the more editorial side of this. I mean, don't you think as I do, that the handling of Trump by the press and his dominance of airwaves from Fox to MSNBC is disproportionate to his real importance in the world we live in? Well, there, Your Honor, I'd like to object to a leading question. But uh, sure, I think that that it's... uh uh, I think it's disproportionate, and I think it's also uh, you, know, you remember the old Woody Allen uh, joke about the the portions are too small and the food's terrible. Uh, you know, I think that that in some ways the coverage is out of proportion, and the kind of coverage being given is oftentimes not uh, taking seriously what he's saying uh, when it deserves serious scrutiny, and not t- treating it as a more comic riff and a more uh, of an entertainment. Uh, uh, role when it deserves not to be taken seriously. I think that we, that the press struggles with this. You know, Huffington Post has said we're only going to cover uh, Donald Trump as an entertainment issue, even though the stories are cross-posted on their political uh, vertical and and are often written by their political reporters. So it's kind of they're saying we don't want to take him seriously, but then nonetheless feel compelled to. To my mind, if you look at television, you know, Donald Trump is a billionaire. He's not probably nearly as wealthy as he claims to be, and that's something that deserves real scrutiny. But He's been able to dominate the airwaves without spending essentially a penny of his own money because he'll pick up the phone and call all of these cable anchors and even network anchors, and they'll take him in ways that they won't do for most other candidates. And I think that's a disproportionate thing, too. They are giving him and ceding to him uh, uh, certain kinds of uh, uh, leverage. He doesn't even have to show up, David. He doesn't even have to show up. He doesn't have to show up. He doesn't have to show up in studio by remote. He doesn't have to show up in studio at Meet the Press. He... Everybody except uh, Fox News' Chris Wallace will take him by phone. And I think that's a real mistake. But I think they're doing it not because he's a fun story, but because they are. And I've been told this by by anchors at various cable and network uh, networks that they are fearful they will miss out on ratings or fearful that he will make more news. And that news may last a cycle or two at most because it won't be particularly substantive, but it'll be a flash and a flare that suddenly they'll be sidelined for. So they take him in ways that they simply wouldn't take, you know, uh, Governor Walker now now gone from the race or, or Marco Rubio. And I think that's disproportionate and distorting as well. It means that he gets to dictate what the Sunday shows look like and the Sunday shows help influence what Monday newspapers and websites have posted on uh, up online. And that then dictates kind of the flow of what the news is for the week. So even though he seems to be dipping a little bit from his major leads, I think the media coverage has been disproportionate and overwrought. I think at times it's great fun. I think that in some ways you can make an interesting counterintuitive argument. And I feel this in some ways that there's more engagement on the Republican side as a result of him. But the kind of engagement is not what I would call a a, a terrific civic good. It's kind of people finding enjoyment and pleasure uh, from this. You know, David Zurich, my old colleague at the Baltimore Sun, recently was arguing with me and he said, you know, uh, it can't simply be that Trump is, uh, is an entertainer and getting people in because Trump's ratings dipped on Celebrity Apprentice. But think about what was at stake in a reality show and think about what's at stake with a presidential election. There's a little thrill of the uh, transgressive and the idea of somebody so uh, untrammeled 
who, you know, at the top tiers of a political race who could get close anyway to a nomination for the nation's highest office. It's crazy. I think the press has been often irresponsible and over the top and sometimes thoughtful and sometimes uh, entertaining on it. But, uh, you know, he has scrambled all of the equations for this race. Uh, on the other side, it does seem like the complaints uh, from the Clinton people that she's being excluded from the media conversation have some legitimacy to them. And even when you see her, as we did uh, just the other day on Meet the Press, the entire conversation was about the mail scandal, the email scandal. And maybe that's appropriate, but we're not getting to know her policy positions any better than we are those of the Republicans, are we? No, I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying there. I think that uh, I'm okay with people taking seriously the email issue, even as uh, it's not clear to me what the ultimate there there is. There are people who have been prosecuted for similar things. Uh, I think it has to be sorted out. Uh, I think that that I find the issue as a voter kind of tiresome, but I do think that it's fair to take it seriously. But that doesn't mean it's fair to dictate the entire rhythms of a, a presidential primary race. I think that's crazy. And I think she's a serious, substantive person with whom uh, many people disagree and in whom many people find inspiration or uh, uh, find some kind of uh, rough ideological agreement. And she's far and away the front runner in the Democratic side. Like, we better be examining her carefully. We better be giving her a ton of airplay. And she's not as fun. Now, I think the relationship goes two ways. I think she has held the press at great length and only uh, opens herself up to serious interviews or serious venues or, or press coverage and engagements when she feels required to do so. Uh, and so I think that you could argue that a lot of that's self-inflicted. But, you know, she's a serious person who's held public office for quite a long time. Uh, she's not simply a first lady riding coattails of her husband's uh, record. Uh, and uh, I think that the press needs to be giving her full coverage. And I think the press, you know, uh, was very attracted by uh, by the iconoclastic figure of uh, Bernie Sanders in a way that sort of overshadowed her as well. Now, there are rhythms to these things. P- things uh, rise and fall. They, they ebb, they flow. But, uh, you know, I think she absolutely, as you suggest, has not been uh, uh, given a full enough uh, uh, coverage scrutiny and and a fair enough uh, hearing for what she has in mind. Last point on this, and let's make this brief. It'd be my view that this whole topic of the uh, media campaign is covered by you and one or two other people in the world and isn't getting enough attention because it would help us understand these phenomena better if there were more media attention played to the role of the media. What do you think? I think right now we're in a world where uh, the financial underpinnings of news organizations are fragile enough that they are pursuing clicks, they are pursuing ratings, and they're trying to figure out what the audience wants. Maybe that at times is substantive, but uh, you know, I think it's important for people like me to be able to do what I'm doing and important for your students and your y- people like you to, to similarly weigh in from, from perhaps uh, not in a major news outlet, but, but if through whatever outlets there are, social media and the like. But uh, I don't know that they're taking that to heart very often, except at key moments. You know, uh, I think that they are trying to figure out ways to uh, capture audiences and, and, and captivate people and keep them paying attention, because uh, the thing they fear most is, is the, that erosion of those audiences. Uh, f- uh, fair points all, David. I, I, speaking of eroding audiences, the second topic we have only a few minutes to deal with, but it's a really important one, is the state of newspapers, which seem to be at another one of these critical moments in what I guess most people would say is their death spiral. You had a great newspaper career at places like the Baltimore Sun. I had a less great newspaper career, but one nonetheless at the Washington Post. Um, But what I want to talk to you about is the L.A. Times. You're from Southern California. The L.A. Times meant a lot to you uh, growing up, no doubt. Mm -hmm. And its parent company, the Tribune Company, has been 
pulling it apart in very dramatic ways. They fired the publisher the other day, and Civic LA seems to be excited about this in a way that is surprising in light of what one might think is the dwindling or declining importance of newspapers in their communities. What do you think about what's going on in LA? Well, you know, L.A., the second largest uh, city in the country, uh, one of the most important centers, a uh, center of uh, not only other industry, but entertainment, uh, certain kinds of culture, even if that's not fully appreciated in other parts of the country. Uh, it's a major center. And ever since the sale of uh, Times Mirror, the parent company of the L.A. Times, to the Tribune Company in 2000, uh, in, which is in Chicago, there's been a real... Uh, damage the pride of Los Angeles uh, to the sense that it's outside ownership. For the first few years, led under John Carroll, tremendous editor, my former editor, it really actually had a very distinguished uh, journalistic record. And by, it's done some way, great work. The, the late John Carroll, who passed away recently and uh, sadly to all of us who knew him. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And his loss, it was a reminder of what the New York, of what the Los Angeles Times uh, is able to do uh, when marshalling its journalistic resources and, and, and a newsroom that's very proud. But it has been cut time and time again. Part of why John left was he didn't want to be trying to paper over that or, or trying to patch holes uh, anymore uh, about a decade ago. And the Times has been cut back uh, quite, quite uh, severely uh, under uh, previous uh, versions of Tribune and under the current uh, new Tribune publishing company. Uh, and Austin Butner, who's uh, of Los Angeles, uh, wealthy many times over uh, in his previous life, a former deputy mayor of Los Angeles, had sort of rallied L.A. to this concept that it would once again be a distinctive paper run by people who understood Los Angeles and its complexity even as and, and figure out new digital paths to perhaps a more viable future. But it was independent in many ways in its vision of how sh- the Chicago-based Tribune publishing company wanted to operate, a much more centralized, cost-cutting uh, uh, template matching approach. And uh, ultimately, people in Los Angeles uh, were taken aback by Butner's uh, dismissal. He seemed just months ago to have the backing of his uh, of his uh, corporate uh, uh, executive uh, bosses in Chicago. And they now sense, well, wait a sec, we're just being, we're, we're like, you know, uh, as John once put it to me, uh, just cards in a deck being shuffled and tossed around. And, you know, the, the, the former publisher of the Baltimore Sun, a man who spent essentially no time in California, uh, has been brought in to lead the paper with no particular vision. And they say, you know, Los Angeles needs better. And it's, as you suggest in your question in some ways, uh, it is emblematic of the fact that cities large and small have felt they deserve better from corporate ownership, from out-of-town ownership. And particularly as they look at the economic erosion that newspapers have faced, they they wonder, you know, who's going to help us, uh, who's going to hold our our, our institutions accountable, who's going to help us think through the issues that matter to these communities. So to you as a Southern Californian, the sturm und drang about uh, the LA Times and its future isn't surprising because it remains a really important institution in that region? Yeah, you know, look, it's the largest news organization in the city. You've seen the rise of Southern California public radio, which I enjoy listening to very much, KCRW, some on, on, in Santa Monica as well. But that public radio is stepping in to fill some of that gap, but it can't fill all of what's lost. I mean, the Los Angeles Times is barely half of what it used to be, uh, call it 12, 13 years ago. And when you lose mu- muscle knowledge, when you lose institutional knowledge, you lose a lot of the ability to to really hold institutions and powerful figures accountable. And that's that's incredibly vital. This is the way in which Los Angeles helps to understand and interpret itself to one another. And it's a city of, you know, really 24 cities scattered around the Southland there. It needs something to help knit it together. And while there are many other sites flourishing and many other sources of information available, uh, I think there is something lost when something like the Los Angeles Times is so damaged. 
Well, that's reassuring on multiple levels, including the fact that here at Montclair State, we're training people to go into the daily local news business, and we hope there'll be newspaper careers as well as public radio careers for them. Thank you, David. Uh, Great to have you. I know we'll do it again. It's greatly appreciated, and I hope you'll give a listen and stay tuned to our future podcast. Uh, Pleasure's all mine. I'm really excited for what's ahead for you guys. Thanks, David. If you would like more information about this episode of Media Download, you can email us at wmsc-genmgr at mail.montclair.edu or call us at 973-655-3135. I'm Merrill Brown. Thanks for listening.